Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr. And I'm Caitlin Undertuck. And this is the Endocrine News Podcast. I was joined by Professors Rami Slema and Barbara Demene to learn about the recent EU resolution on endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Dr. Rami Slema is an environmental epidemiologist. He is Senior Investigator at INSERM, the National Institute of Health and Medical Research, where he leads the INSERM Grenoble University Joint Research Team in environmental epidemiology applied to reproduction and respiratory health. Dr. Barbara Demene is a professor in the Comparative Physiology Laboratory within the Natural History Museum in Paris. She is an expert on thyroid function and endocrine disruption and maintains active roles in several EU research projects. She is also active with many international committees addressing thyroid hormone and endocrine disruption. I started this conversation by talking with Dr. Barbara Demene about her involvement in the outreach efforts by the Endocrine Society regarding EDCs. Well, the Endocrine Society has been exceedingly supportive, and that's been for a number of years now in, in this field. And the EU task force uh, existed well before, but uh, I've been chairing it for the last couple of years, I think. And uh, I, I, I like to think that with the Endocrine Society support, we have really made some strong progress. We've had meetings with the people from the Commission. Uh, we've been... Uh, present uh, at the Parliament and um, we've contributed to debates at multiple levels and I think it's, it's really a, a reflection of this resolution and the fact that um, I was asked to write this report uh, when I think it primarily came from the fact that I, I wrote my books but the fact that I was also present in the Endocrine Society task force uh, no doubt played a role and um, I think that the fact that we got to this resolution, it reflects this immense investment that the Endocrine Society has had and will continue to have in this arena in the future. And I think it's, we've had setbacks, of course, but it's all been exceedingly positive. And this, this group of people, we started off with mainly with people from Germany, uh, Italy, France, and now we've got obviously more Spanish people and things like this, but it really does show that uh, when one combines forces with different people, then you can actually be more, much more effective. And we had a clear target. The Endocrine Society knew that it was going to be in Europe, that things could be changed once reach had, the, the REACH law had been passed. And so it, it was positive. And they, they did the right thing. They were very visionary. They were very prescient in the fact that they felt that it was only going to be in Europe where they could make their voices sufficiently heard. And experience has proven them right. Do you know of any future plans that the EU task force has in this area? Well, we've written. I, I have personally written to the um, Minister of Environment and... Um, other members of the task force are writing to their ministers. Uh, so that's the short term. In the longer term, it will relate to what we can now expect following this resolution, things like that. This will be largely determinant in, in what we hope to do uh, according to the way things pan out with the new parliament. But well, we've got the votes in now. We know that the Green Party uh, did very well especially at the European level. So 
Yeah, it's just the third force in in the parliament now. And so we know that we can count on their support. It was the the advisor for the Green Party that put forward the resolution that was, and the resolution was able to obtain this cross-party consensus. So we have a momentum now. You are both the two authors of a research paper requested by the European Parliament's Committee on Petitions to provide scientific evidence regarding the concept of endocrine disruption. So before we get into how this report influenced the recent EU resolution on EDCs, I'd like to hear a little bit more about EDCs themselves. Barbara, could you talk a little bit about the mechanisms of action, the main dangers, and the health effects associated with these EDCs? Well, what we underline in the report is what many people in the endocrine society know now, that EDCs or endocrine disruptors can work at very low doses, as do natural hormones, that uh, we are particularly concerned that so many people today are exposed to multiple chemicals that can have endocrine disrupting effects. And so we have mixtures, mixture effects, that can either have cumulative effects or synergistic effects. And that we know from both experimental studies and from epidemiological studies that these chemicals can have effects which can be, in some circumstances, considered to be adverse, i.e. they are going to affect our health. And we know that there are multiple non-infectious or non-communicative diseases that have been associated to endocrine disruption. The other thing that we really insist on in this uh, report is the cost. I was a a member of the uh, group that was set up by Leo Trasandi of the New York School of Medicine to address the cost of endocrine disruptors. We found a massive figure that was uh, was, uh, in in the over 100 billion euros per annum just for a handful of EDCs. And a large number of these were related to uh, their effects uh, on neurodevelopment, especially IQ loss. The main ideas that were elaborated in the first chapters about, and I haven't yet got into the mechanisms, but we, for some uh, EDCs, we do know the mechanisms of action, whereas for others, we are completely ignorant. For instance, uh, where we, we can observe many effects that would be indicative of thyroid hormone disruption, we don't actually know the mechanism of action. And, and of course, we have many historical examples of, of when people were able to act despite the fact that they didn't know the mechanism of action. And this is something that we really need to insist on, that we should apply the precautionary principle more often, even if we don't know the actual mechanism of action. And uh, this is something that is also elaborated in the guidance document for for pesticides and, or let's say, plant protection products and biocides, in that it's a biologically plausible concept that has to be shown, not necessarily a mechanism of action per se. And so as there are plethora of mechanisms of action that can be found for some endocrine disrupting chemicals, for those that we don't know, we can see the adverse effects. And so this is the 
the general tone of the, these first two chapters that we set out. Remy, could you provide a brief overview of the second half of the proposal, where you talk about suggestions for resolution or, or the current state of resolution? Well, I can tell about the current regulation of these compounds in the European uh, Union, which is one of the things we have also reviewed in this report. So we know that there are many uh, marketed chemicals, currently above 22,000. This is something we know in the context of rich regulation. And um, the regulation is often sectorial. There, there are specific uh, uh, logics of management, say, for cosmetics, plant protection products, biocides, uh, drugs, etc. Uh, however, there's a few overarching concepts and, and principles. And one important is that some categories of substances, because of the hazards, the generator, the physical properties or chemical properties warrant specific consideration and are handled separately by the regulation. This is, of course, the case of the well-known CMR substances, that is carcinogens, mutagens for protoxicants, and also uh, a PBT, uh, the persistent bioaccumulative and, and toxic uh, substances. And endocrine disruptors represent a new class of uh, hazard, uh, a broad hazard class that, as we have reviewed, has entered the regulation in a few areas of the world, most specifically the European Union, which is probably the place in the world where the regulation makes most clearly reference to endocrine disruptors per se, not uh, to specific endocrine disruptors uh, on the compound by compound logic, for example, uh, uh, DDT or, or, or bisphenol A. In the EU regulation, it's probably the place in the world where the situation of endocrine disruptors is, is considered globally as a hazard category. For example, um, in an important text called the Seventh Environmental Action Program, where it's stated uh, that uh, chemicals should be produced in a way that leads to minimization of significant adverse effects on health and the environment. And that action program had also the stated aim that by 2020, all relevant substances of very high concern, including thousands uh, endocrine disrupting properties, should be placed on rich candidate list, that is uh, the list of uh, substances of, of very high concern. There are also um, communications and plans aiming for um, minimization of overall exposure of humans and the environment to endocrine disruptors. So there are broad references to EDs. And now what we have done in, the, in that report is to identify whether the existing regulation was efficient enough to really allow uh, minimizing overall exposure. And we have considered that in order for exposure to be controlled and minimized, there were five main components required. The first one is to have a clear definition of the hazard we're talking about, so a clear definition of EDs in that case. Uh, you need to have validated tests to identify them. You need a guidance document to explain how to apply the definition based on test results and scientific publication, some algorithm of decision that allow to tell you if a substance can be recognized as an ED. Uh, importantly, you need the tests to be compulsory, to be required in the regulation so that a company wishing to market a product 
should of course be obliged to protect the information that would uh, allow the environmental health agencies to say the substance uh, is hazardous or not, is an ED or, or not. And the fifth condition is to have a management logic. Once you have answered the question, is this an endocrine disruptor? Is this likely to be an endocrine disruptor? You need to answer the question, what do I do with that? And in our, in our view of the regulation, we have uh, seen that in the case of the biocides and the plant protection products regulation, we were quite close in the European Union to have some of these five conditions satisfied for biocides and plant protection products. Indeed, there is no definition of endocrine disruptors. We have some tests, even if they don't cover all endocrine disruptor modalities, some tend to cover at least the estrogen modality, the androgen modality also to some extent, less so regarding maybe the thyroid modality. Uh, there's also a guidance document written by ECA and EFSA, the Chemical Agency and the Food Safety Authority, explaining uh, how to apply the definition. And there's a management logic that says that in the European Union, pesticide, basically biocide or pain protection product, shouldn't be used if it contains an endocrine disruptor. Uh, it shouldn't be uh, marketed unless exposure is negligible, which means that in, the, in practice the, the compound will not be authorized uh, as a common uh, a pesticide if it's an endocrine disruptor. However, uh, even in that sector, we have identified a limitation, which is that, at least for biocides, the test requirements were quite limited. It is not clear to us that a company wishing to market a potential pesticide uh, will have to perform enough tests that will make it clear for the regulatory agency to say, well, this may be your disease an endocrine uh, disruptor. And in other sectors, because as I've mentioned, the, the regulation is sectorial, then the situation is to some extent less efficient or coherent in that very often there's no definition of the hazard. The definition of endocrine disruptor currently, uh, at least from a legal point of view, does not apply beyond uh, biocides and plant protection products. And very often the test requirements are quite low or the management logic is not specified. For example, the cosmetics regulation doesn't say how uh, endocrine disruptor should be handled as a class by itself, as a broad cate hazard category, so that it is not clear to us that uh, this in this sector uh, we will minimize uh, human exposure because we know that, of course, uh, cosmetics are a broad category of products that entail uh, human exposure. So um, we have done this work of inventory of coherence of the regulation when it comes to really allowing to minimize uh, human exposure and checking for which of the sectors the regulation was coherent. And it turned out that beside the area of biocide and, and plant protection product, uh, most of the sectors uh, were far from providing enough insurance that um, the regulatory agencies had enough information to really minimize uh, human exposure in the specific sectors. Remy, can you speak a little bit about how EDCs are regulated in other parts of the world? Is there the same level of attention? Can you talk a little bit about the contrast between how the EU is beginning to look at EDC regulation and what's happening in the rest of the world? This is not an easy question, but from our understanding, uh, it is quite striking to see that in many highly industrialized countries with 
wealthy, uh, rather wealthy uh, or rich economies such, such as uh, Northern America or a specific part of Asia, such as Japan, for example, there was very little reference to endocrine disruptors as a general category. For example, this principle that is envisioned in rich regulation that endocrine disruptors are a category of hazard of similar concern to the carcinogens or the mutagens or the reprotoxicants, to my knowledge, is, is unique to the European Union. It's even not easy to find, for example, the legally valid definition of, of endocrine disruptors in the law of many countries, so that I think for most of the world, endocrine disruptors are regulated on a compound-by-compound basis. This doesn't mean that populations are totally not protected from endocrine disruptors, but I would say that regulators haven't done the step of recognizing endocrine disruptors as a broad hazard category of concern, just like persistent compounds are or carcinogens are. And I think it's an important step because we are talking about tens of thousands of chemicals. And if you sometimes having a few broad categories where society says, well, this is the kind of hazard that we have to handle with more caution than other hazards, say just a compound that would be only a skin irritant, maybe. I think it is helpful both for societies and, 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 and regulators. So clearly there's a contrast between the European Union where endocrine disruptors have been mentioned as such probably from the very end of the 1990s and at least as early as 2006 in rich regulation or 2009 in the plant protection product regulation. And most countries in, in, in the world, maybe with the exception of Brazil, where to my knowledge, they also have a regulation where pesticides should not contain endocrine disruptors. Yeah, I could add something to this too, in the sense that like Remy, uh, I'm often invited to places like South Korea, um, Japan, etc. And well, as there are restrictions now on the use of pesticides, which can be endocrine disruptors, in uh, the use of these pesticides in other countries that exporting to the European Union, other countries are very much aware of the fact that the European Union is very much advanced more than they are in regulating endocrine disruptors. And one could also add to this that they are looking to the, uh, the European Union to regulate, and that way they will be able to use the type of regulations that are applied in Europe to their own countries. I know this is the case, well, I don't know the case globally, but it's, it has been said to me that, you know, in South Korea and in Japan, they are hoping that the European Union will take the lead and then they can almost justify their own countries should do similar types of regulations. The resolution, as it is now, states that there is, quote, no valid reason to postpone effective regulation. And it called on the Commission to develop a concrete action plan and legislative proposals to remove endocrine disruptors from cosmetics, toys, and food packaging by June of 2020. What do you think needs to happen for this plan to actually take place? Well, maybe one thing is, is first to admit that we don't know everything about endocrine disruptors. There's still something to learn about the mechanisms of action or to the number of compounds that will be endocrine disruptors. 
But the fact that we don't know, as, as Barbara uh, already mentioned, uh, doesn't mean that we cannot take relevant actions. The situation is actually the same for carcinogens. Scientists are still every day providing uh, evidence on the mechanisms of actions of carcinogens or identifying new carcinogens. But when it comes to the known carcinogens or the known mechanisms of action, there is no reason not to try to protect society from them. And the situation is similar for endocrine disruptors. So we already know a lot about the mechanisms of actions, and there are many clearly identified or suspected EDs with, with a strong level of evidence for which, indeed, it is possible to act. And so if, as the Parliament in that resolution taken shortly after we have presented our report is heard, then uh, clearly we have suggested simple steps that could allow to really be closer to that logic of uh, efficiently minimizing human exposure. The general principle would be to make sure first that there is a definition of endocrine disruptors valid across all sectors. And uh, there's no reason to postpone that the WHO has published a clear definition of endocrine disruptors widely accepted by scientists as early as 2002, if not earlier. And in addition to that horizontal definition that is valid across all sectors, then there should be also a clear test requirements that make it compulsory for someone who mark will market a product for which there is likely human exposure uh, to make sure that the company makes tests that would allow uh, regulatory agencies to say, well, this may be or this is certainly an endocrine disruptor. And then there should also be a reg regulation logic that is, once we know this is an endocrine disruptor, what should be done? Uh, can the substance be used to a certain extent? Should it be uh, banned or banned from for specific uh, products? So the principles are quite clear, and now the question is how fast the regulations can be updated, uh, which may take some time because of that logic that is very sectorial, which might make sense from a regulatory point of view, but which doesn't make much sense from the point of view of protecting public health because uh, the chemicals move from one compartment of the environment to the other, of course. Can you talk about any specific actions that you expect the Commission to take moving forward? Well, the Commission is currently carrying out a fitness check, which means that they're going through the current regulations and uh, in different sectors to see where there is room for improvement. And obviously, as we've just underlined, there is obviously a lot of room for improvement. And... Um, this is why we argued but most strongly for a cross-sectorial definition and regulation of the EDCs. So I imagine that they're going to come up with these ideas. The time frame, as Remy has just uh, underlined, is, is difficult to assess. How, how the fitness check is supposed to be published pretty soon, isn't it? Um, in, in, Feb in September or... As early as that, isn't it? I, I it might be, might be later than that. But. Yeah, but it's supposed to be coming out this year, this fitness check. And um, after that, there were going to be a number of other meetings. There's going to be hearings of um, public consultation on this fitness check that will be, will be held. And so there'll be a number of actions 
Of course, many of the NGOs uh, see this as a means of stalling, even the fitness check itself. It could be seen as a way of stalling legislation. And uh, the stakeholder hearings that will be held afterwards can also be seen as either moving forward or, or stalling on it. But let, let's hope that they uh, do take up this resolution and uh, move forward. Simple yeah. actions include also, for example, that you make sure that all the available tests uh, that you? exist and that we know allow to identify description of the estrogen axis, of the androgen axis, or the thyroid axis, be really made compulsory uh, first for biocides and plant protection products, but also in other areas where human exposure or environmental exposure, because this is also a concern, is possible. Of course, that would imply probably more tests for companies to perform, but I think this is a cost to make sure that we don't have regrets later and induce adverse health effects or environmental damage that are very yeah. difficult to reverse afterwards. Yeah, uh, this is, um, we have been able to show quite clearly that there's uh, an increase in the number of reproductive cancers, there's uh, an increase in obesity and diabetes, type 2 diabetes, in each of these cases, we have been able to show, other scientists have been able to show that they are related to endocrine disruption. We know about IQ loss and increased risk of autism uh, and ADHD, uh, according to whether the child is exposed in utero to particularly substances that uh, disrupt the thyroid hormone axis and, and therefore affect brain development. This has been shown for a number of organophosphate chemicals, such as pesticides, such as uh, chlorpyrifos. It's also been shown for flame retardants, such as PBDEs. And so another category is, of course, reduced fertility and cryptoorganism, uh, or <laughs> orchidism in, um, in boys. Crypto-orchidism can lead to testicular cancer, has been linked to testicular cancer. Again, it's also been linked to phthalate exposure in utero has been linked to reduced fertility. So you've got a, a whole spectrum of non-communicable diseases that have been quite clearly shown, as I've said already, by epidemiology and by animal experimentation to endocrine disruption. So there is enough evidence to be able to start to apply the types of regulation that Remy was just referring to, to limit human exposure. What are the new research directions that are taking place in the field? What are academic scientists currently working on in this area? Both of us are involved in these new research projects that the European Union has financed. They've put up 52 million euros and they're funding eight different projects. And at least four of these projects looking at thyroid hormone disruption, new screening tests for thyroid hormone, and or new, new ways of looking at brain development uh, or neurotoxicity. There's others that are looking at uh, metabolic disorders and female reproduction. These are the main areas that uh, the commission wanted to see uh, new research projects. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, Barbara, but there are many other areas. I mean, oh, yes, uh, yes. a, a, basic, a basic question is, is, for example, to better characterize 
uh, human exposure. So in, in the USA, uh, a beautiful uh, approach is that of the CDC's, the NHANE study, which has allowed to document exposure to many potential endocrine disruptors over the last uh, decades. And um, the CDC keeps on updating the list of compounds they are taking into account. In many parts of the world, we don't have such detailed information on the extent of exposure of the human population. In Europe, there are initiatives such as the Human Biomonitoring uh, HBM4EU project, but I would say that we don't have the wealth of information provided by in the U.S. by NHANES. So in terms of monitoring human populations and the environments, there is still uh, things to learn. In terms of trying to better characterize those response functions in humans, there are many challenges because many of the currently marketed suspected endocrine disruptors are non-persistent. And the uh, ancient epidemiological studies in those from the past usually uh, characterized exposures in ways that tend to probably underestimate the effect of compounds and not taking into account their variability. And we know that there are ways to... Uh, improve that and to more efficiently characterize exposure simply by collecting not one biospecimen per subject, but several biospecimens per subject. And having a more robust dose response function in humans would be relevant to have a, a better view of the overall health impact uh, and associated cost of exposure to uh, endocrine disruptors, because currently we have only a, a limited view of that. And there are many other um, areas, uh, of course, in, in the report. We also, of course, mentioned the question of uh, the possible multi-generational effects of endocrine disruptors. We all have in mind the historical example of dietyl-steel for which there were effects in the pregnant woman who was prescribed dietyl-steel in her offspring and also possibly in the grandchildren of the woman who was prescribed the drug. And so the question uh, is, are there many other compounds for which such uh, multi-generational effects are possible in humans? And we know from the animal studies that this is quite uh, likely for some compounds, actually. We made another, uh, a number of other suggestions uh, for research needs. We, um, besides the dose response functions of EDCs in, in humans, we underlined uh, effects on the microbiome, the need for better chemistry for research into the, in chemicals that are more readily biodegradable. There are so many mechanisms that we don't understand and modalities how endocrine disruptors could be affecting. There's so much focus on androgen, estrogen and thyroid and yet we don't have in, any information about other second systems that are dependent on endocrine pathways. There is a need to, to broaden our scope and to think about which other modalities could be involved in endocrine disruption. We didn't mention this, but effects on, on mitochondria, for instance, uh, which could be related to metabolic disease. We, we have very little information on, on, on these areas. Are there specific proposals that are being funded by Horizon 2020 that are also related to EDC? Yeah, I, I mentioned that there are eight currently funded. Both Remy and I, uh, I I'm involved in two, and uh, Remy's involved in one. I've also alluded to the Human Biomonitoring Project, oh, yeah, yeah. which yes. uh, will also provide information on, 
on many suspected endocrine disruptors. Uh, there was also a call on the exposome, and since the exposome concept corresponds to uh, all exposures to which one is exposed from conception onwards, uh, this will of course include endocrine disruptors with many other um, types of, of hazards, of course. So the exposome call uh, will also provide probably around 50 million uh, euros of uh, research fund later this year. Uh, I mean, clearly uh, there is room for um, large research projects. As we are moving towards also consideration of a larger and larger number of compounds uh, simultaneously, as we are also trying to move towards the consideration of possible synergies between these compounds, uh, we will need both for toxicology and, and human studies, uh, larger and larger um, studies, which indeed implies uh, quite strong financial uh, support if we want to provide clear answers and not uh, small studies with uh, uncertain answers. Before I let you go, is there anything that I've missed or that you would particularly like to share? I would just like to underline how uh, supportive the Endocrine Society has been. I mentioned this before when, when we were talking about the task force. I really should underline yet again how supportive and how useful the Endocrine Society's role has been. And in relation to that, I, I could add uh, that the endocrine disruptors world is really a fascinating research topic that has unfolded from the 1990s uh, and actually from earlier on, even if the term of the expression of endocrine disruptor did not uh, exist before the 1990s. I think just like we have an international agency for carcinogens that is an independent agency aiming at reviewing the existing evidence and classifying each compound in terms of their possible carcinogenic effect, it would be relevant for a more coordinated international independent effort in the area of endocrine disruptors, uh, possibly with the, the development of, of an agency or whatever structure in charge of independently reviewing the evidence and providing uh, an ambiguous answers to the population that wants to know if the compound is, is likely to be an endocrine disruptor. Thank you very much for your time. If there's nothing else, I'm just um, really appreciative of this conversation. I look forward to speaking with you in the near future. Okay, thanks very much, Kathy. Okay, thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you, thank you very much. That's all for this podcast. Thanks for listening. To learn more, check out our thematic issue on endocrine disrupting chemicals. You can find a link to that issue in this episode's description at www.endocrine.org slash podcast. There you can also listen to our previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.